We're uh, working our way through Ephesians chapter 6, which is uh, the last section of something that's called the household codes of the book of Ephesians, uh, in which Paul is talking to believers about the unique ways that the way that they conduct themselves in their families, in their marriages, in their parenting, and in their work can impact the people in those places and people beyond those places. Uh, and uh, these are really challenging verses, all of them. They have a lot to teach us today. They're very relevant for us, and it's been a, a blessing to walk through them with you. We're going to be looking at verses 5 to 9 this morning as we look at the issue of vocation. And remember, everything in this section is predicated on what's said back in chapter 5 and verse 21, where, where Paul says we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is the essential calling of the Christian life. And so whether you are in a, a superior position or an inferior position, you're all called to submission to one another. And the Bible is laying out for us the different ways that that should happen in our lives. And so we're going to be looking at how that happens in the context of our work this morning. Uh, I've had a few jobs in my life. I've been a pastor a long time, actually, but had a few odd jobs here and there. One of my, my favorite odd jobs I had was a summer job at Covenant College where I attended um, at Covenant. Uh, I've told you stories about Covenant in the past. I played soccer at Covenant, and that's our, our soccer field at Covenant, Scotland Yard. Uh, it's New Scotland Yard, actually, and it was actually built when I was a student at Covenant during the summer when I was working for the college on the grounds department. Now, uh, they had professional people working on the field, and it's a little bit hard to see, but it's kind of cut into the side of a mountain, and it's surrounded by woods, and you can kind of look off in the distance. And there was a, a, little, a little dirt road cut through the woods that was barely passable on which they were doing construction. And my, my friend Sean and I, who were employed as summer workers at Covenant, our job uh, wasn't to work on the field, it was to go around the campus and clean things up and empty trash and paint stuff and all the menial jobs that need to be done to keep a college in place during the summer. But we were both soccer players and we were super excited about the fact that there was going to be a new field to play on that fall. And so uh, we took advantage of that. We had a, a, a college truck that we would drive around campus to do our work and we were explicitly forbidden from going down to the field because it was too dangerous to drive in that area but you know we expanded our lunch hours often you know our lunch hour would go from 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 half an hour to an hour to hour and a half two hours and we wasted time and abused the system and we'd go down to the field and we would hang out down at the field and talk about our dreams for soccer at Covenant but one day we were driving down to the field in the college truck, and it had rained a little bit the day before, and as we were going down uh, the steep incline of this rock road, the edge of the road gave way, and the college truck that we were in tipped on its side in a ditch. And um, we were like sitting there, you know, at a 90 degree angle in the truck, like, uh-oh, <laughs> we're in trouble here. Not only because the truck is in a ditch, but because we were explicitly forbidden from being here in a college vehicle. And so for the next two or three hours, we called. Uh, we didn't have cell phones at that point, so we like ran. We found somebody who had a phone in an apartment. We started calling all of our friends. We've got to lift the truck out of the ditch and get it back to campus and see if there's any damage to it. Well, needless to say, we were not successful in that endeavor. 
and we had to report to our boss that we had been in the place we were not supposed to do, be wasting college time uh, and um, uh, disappointing those who were our supervisors in work. Uh, it was not uh, my finest hour uh, as a, uh, a young man, but our boss was gracious to us. He forgave us um, and put us on toilet duty for the rest of the summer. <laughs> I just tell you that story because work, you know, work is such an interesting part of our lives. So much of our life is spent in work. You know, if we work an average 40-hour week, we're spending a third of our life working, uh, doing things, trying to be productive, creative, using our talents and gifts. And in that sense, we should think about, and the Lord does teach us a lot about what it means to be faithful and godly workers in whatever sphere of life we're called to do that. Um, the problem that a lot of us have in life, and I've faced it, I think all of us face it, is sometimes we get into this mode where we separate our work life from our spiritual life. And in that sense, we create this very strange and I think false dichotomy between the, God, the way that God works in that sphere of our life. And Paul knew this because the Lord had laid it on his heart as he was speaking to people in the first century of the church about the fact that their work matters, whether they are a supervisor in that work or whether they are the person that is being supervised. And so we're going to look at that this morning in a number of different ways, but what I want us to see most of all as we look at this passage is that we're called as Christian people to conduct ourselves in our relational sphere as we would if we were in direct vocational relationship with Jesus Christ himself. And so in that sense, what Paul is essentially saying to us is that we need to envision, at least in terms of our inspiration, the fact that we're either working for Jesus or Jesus is working for us. And therefore, how do we act in those situations? We're going to read beginning in verse 5 of Ephesians chapter 6. This is God's holy an inerrant word, and this is what it says to us today. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Sends a reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, would you bless each of your people here this morning as you minister to us through your spirit, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear what we ought to do in relationship to the beautiful truths that we find in your word. And I pray also today, Father, for those that are here that may be struggling with faith, may be struggling with doubt. Maybe they don't know you. Lord, I just pray that you would do a work in their hearts as well to see the glory of what you have given us in and through the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
There's some important context when we look at a passage like this that we need to talk about before we dig into what it says. And the first thing I want to say, I've said it in each of the sermons in this particular part of the book of Ephesians, is that we cannot underestimate the gospel subversiveness of these household ethics. You cannot underestimate how powerful they were. Because everything that Paul is teaching about about marriage, about men and women and marriage, husbands and wives, and about parents and their children, this passage about masters and their bondservants or their slaves, upends the order of things that was present in the world in that day in which people that had power and position and authority could exercise that power and position and authority with impunity taking advantage of people around them without any real pushback. And so the gospel comes in, the scriptures come in, and what Paul is saying is that if you are a Christian person, and you are a a person who has power, or you have supervisory roles in your life, or you have leadership roles in your life, you need to take them seriously in relationship to your faith. You have to conduct yourselves in relationship to your faith. And he's saying, on the other hand, to those people who worked under authority, who had submissive roles to other people, that they mattered, that they had dignity, that they had value, that God saw them. And in that way, these ethics of the Christian household began to upend the order of things in the world so that people, especially people who were in submissive positions, couldn't resist coming to this faith which dignified them in a world that took advantage of them. And so Christianity, over and over again, by decade, by generation, was doubling and doubling and doubling in size because of the power of the kinds of things that's being spoken of here, paired with the beauty of the gospel of grace, which in, which is in many ways what is behind the power of these things. A second thing I want to talk about uh, as we get going into this is this whole question of this term you find in the ESV, bondservants. You might read in other translations the word slaves, and in other translations the word servants. It's all the same Greek word. It's the word doulos. And it can be translated rightfully in any one of those ways. That's caused a lot of people to think, well, gosh, why why does the Bible endorse slavery? The Bible's endorsing slavery here. It's telling slaves just to deal with it, be slaves. Is that really what the Bible says? I want to just talk about that uh, for a moment, especially in the context of where we are uh, today. Slavery in Israel, maybe not so much in Rome or in other parts of the ancient world, but especially in Israel, was not race-based. It was nothing like the chattel slavery that we experienced in this country and in Europe at the founding of our nation. It was instead circumstance-based. People became slaves because of circumstances. And circumstances that uh, put people in a situation of slavery were they were debtors to someone, and this gave them an opportunity to work off their debt over a period of time. Some of them were criminals, and these were ways that they were to make restitution for their crimes. Some of these people were extraordinarily poor, and it was the only way that they could take care of their families and subsist 
in the midst of that poverty. And some of them actually had means or resources, but they, they believed that by entering into the household of a person who had more opportunities than them, it could expand their opportunities in life. That isn't to say that there weren't ever foreign slaves in some cases. But the context here in Ephesians 6 is indeed a Christian household in which everyone there should understand in some sense that they were under a greater master. Some slaves in the ancient world held high-ranking positions in government. You read about doulos who had roles as treasurers over government uh, coffers and that were ambassadors. And so slaves were not all the time at the bottom of the rung in terms of ancient Israel. Another factor to understand here is that the Israelites themselves would have been extraordinarily sensitive to issues of slavery because they themselves as a people had been enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh. Because of that, the, the, the scriptures themselves actually have a, a lot to say about this, maybe not in the direct ways that we would want, but the, the Bible in the Old Testament, and many people miss this, it actually does contain prohibitions against slavery in the form of, of, of man-stealing or kidnapping. In Deuteronomy 24 in verse 7, it absolutely forbids that. You cannot forcefully take someone and force them into labor under you. That's a prohibition in Scripture. You come to places like Revelation 18 and verse 13, which speaks of, of Rome and its power, and it also forbids and laments slavery in those contexts. So it's untrue to say the Bible has nothing negative to say about slavery, especially of that uh, worst variety. The Bible also makes a number of very important implicit arguments against slavery. Uh, one of them is the argument coming from the image of God or the Imago Dei, Genesis chapter 1 and verses 26 to 28. You know this passage, God created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden to work it and tend it. And it says there he made them in his image. In that sense, we bear, we bear in ourselves the markings of God, although we are not God, but we, we are given things that are like God, and we have dignity because of that. So for that reason, Christians ought to be people who oppose slavery. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, who was an early church father in the, uh, the third century, was already speaking about the, the, the horror of slavery when he said this, how could a human being a rational creation of God be given a price? What could have the same market value as human nature? How much does rationality cost? How many coins for the image of God? How much money do you get for selling the God-formed man? And although not everyone in the case of the early church was on that page, you find many statements from the early church fathers who were railing against the horror of slavery. Another implicit argument against slavery is in Galatians chapter 3 when Paul speaks to people and he says in that passage, among other things, that there is no slave nor free in Christ. Those outer distinctions are not the thing that God sees about us. They are not the things that matter in determining one's salvation. And therefore, slaves and free, whatever the condition of that person was, could have a relationship with the Lord. And finally, a third implicit 
argument against slavery in the New Testament in particular is the story of Philemon, who himself had slaves, one of which was named Onesimus, who became uh, a part of Paul's ministry team, if you will, intended to Paul, but he had kind of escaped the power of his master, Philemon. So Paul sits and writes with his own hand a letter to Philemon uh, in which he pleads with Philemon to relinquish his claim upon Onesimus for the sake of the gospel. Gavin Ortland, who is uh, a pastor and a PhD himself, says this about that. In other words, Paul dissolves the slave-master relationship and erects in its place a brother-brother relationship in which the former slave is treated with all the dignity with which the apostle himself would be treated. Thus, even before the actual institution of slavery is abolished, the work of the gospel abolishes the assumptions and prejudices that make slavery possible. And oh, oh, that those who came before us as the founders of this nation would have paid attention to these things. Because what was done in the founding of our nation in Europe and in other places was a horrific and terrible sin against God and humanity. And we can never sweep that under the rug. We must deal with that. And there are many ideas and ways to deal with that, and that's not the point this morning, but Christians of all people, and it was Christians who led abolition movements in this country, almost exclusively Christians, were the ones that helped to bring an end to the terrible injustice of slavery, especially the American version of it. A couple other things to note uh, about this passage. Uh, the world of work was very different in those days than it is now. Uh, then uh, it was a highly agrarian society. Today, we do not, we have agriculture, but most of us don't work in agriculture. It was almost always family business oriented in the ancient world. All business was kind of conducted out of your home, and you'd have a business that you would run, you'd have a farm, you'd have animals. Today, most business isn't run that way. It's run through corporations. Um, in those days of Scripture, business was based in the home, the household. Today, it's mostly based out of the household. Uh, back then, they would pay people via bartering of goods and services, and they would give to workers in the home uh, room and board in exchange for their labors. Today, we're paid with cash and benefits. Uh, back then, there was a religious aspect to work, and in Israel in particular, there was this powerful principle called the Jubilee, which was uh, the fact that every seven years, a slave was to be freed from their labors, and every 50th year, their property that they had lost in debt was to be restored to their family. And so in Israel, in their belief in God, who had a, a superstructure that laid over the top of all vocation and work, that was to ensure the perpetuation of family's ability to function and have dignity. And today we have that not. We no longer have jubilees. Everything is governed by civil laws and government policies, which in some ways reflect attempts to act justly in the workplace, but not in the way that the scripture would have. Uh, is it appropriate then to connect this uh, idea of bond service uh, to modern-day employment? Because um, that's the question you have when you come to a passage like this. And my answer to that is this. In some ways, yes, 
because what Paul is talking about are our attitudes and motivations in our work as believers. But in some ways, no, because slavery in all its forms is a product of the fall. And we always run a risk of diminishing the pain of those who have been enslaved by simply comparing them to employees. It's not quite the same. Um, does this passage then only apply to Christians? That's another interesting fact, because what? This is the Christian household ethic. And so can we take what we're going to read here and get into in more detail in a moment and just transport it over to our work world? Well, again, um, mostly this passage applies to Christians. Either Christians who um, have leadership roles in business or Christians who work in business, and especially the relationship that they have with each other. That's the best application of this passage. That said, in many ways, in the ancient households of Israel, there were people present who hadn't yet grasped or professed faith. And so they were potential converts to Christianity. And the household uh, father, the leader of the household, as a believing person, would certainly have been sensitive to that, recognizing that the way he conducted himself would have an impact on how those people might view the issues related to faith. And so it does, in that sense, have some application to us. Um, and so uh, with all that background in mind, and I apologize for all that background, but you need it when you're going to look at a passage like this. Let's go and let's look together at what's said in these verses. The first thing I want to point out are the common requirements of mutual submission in vocation. And I want you just to look at, at Ephesians 6 and see something very interesting here because the first few verses are directed toward bondservants, doulos. And then in verse 9, the attention turns to masters. And look there at the first phrase in verse 9. It says, masters, do the same to them. That's an important textual marker because what it's saying is that everything that Paul just said to the bondservants applies also to the masters from their perspective. That's why I want to talk first about the idea of mutual submission in the vocational sphere. So every bullet point under the instruction to bondservants applies to the masters as well. And what is the first thing that we see? That you are to conduct yourself in this context with reverence and heart-deep motivation. It says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Now, this idea of fear and trembling isn't fear and trembling as in terror. That's not the idea. It's fear and trembling in terms of deep respect or reverence is the way it's often translated. The idea of being sincere in heart speaks to our motivations. Why are we doing it? Do we have motives for acting in this manner, respectfully, reverentially toward the other in this relationship? Are our motivations good in the sense of the way that the Bible would determine and define those things? It goes to the big question of why we would act different than the world, more differently than the world acts in relationship to our work relationships. And the answer is because we are different. I have to attach myself to the things that the scriptures say about who I am and what I do more than I do 
what the world says. Another component is that we shouldn't do this with, with flattery. That's what it kind of means when it says, not by the way, verse 6, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. What's eye service? Well, eye service, eye service is doing something to catch the attention of and to impress another person when it benefits you, but showing little diligence when it doesn't. Okay, so in other words, when the boss is watching, you do things, you worked hard, you, you do an excellent job, you speak kindly to the boss, but the second the boss goes out the room, like my little story to begin uh, today, you kind of do your own thing in your own way, and you really don't put the effort in that you would. That's eye service. And you know what, the same thing can be done uh, with a master toward a servant in this context where they say kind things, you're doing great work, I really appreciate what you're doing, I'd like to give you a raise or this benefit, and then they walk in the next room with their peers and they go, I don't like that guy, that guy's terrible. I'm no way I'm going to do that. But they want the employee to like him, so they say all kinds of nice things about him. Both types of people can act like people pleasers and do things by the way of eye service in, uh, in terms of relationships. That's the second component. A third component is serving with a positive disposition grounded in spiritual motivations. Verse 7 says, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not uh, to man. That is seeing beyond the immediate context for what you're actually going to be doing. And in that sense, it answers the question, why are you doing this kind of work? Why are you laboring faithfully and justly as a worker? Why do you take care of your employees and the people that serve in the business that you operate in the way that you do? Well, the answer is we do it on either side for Jesus's glory, for the glory of Christ. And that kind of gets at the heart of something that's really important for us when we think about work. And it is the porousness that should exist between the world of work and the spiritual world. I was talking about this earlier. Many of us spend a lot of time at work and we never have a thought about the spiritual dimensions of what we're doing. As salespeople, as medical people, as school teachers, as clerks in the store, whatever work you do, sometimes we go, we go through the motions, and the best answer we can possibly give when someone says, what's unique about your working as a Christian is that, well, I don't cheat or steal. And that's about as far as many of us ever get when we think about our work. But what, what the Lord is saying, based on everything we've talked about from Genesis 1 up to this point, is that God gave us work as a gift. Work occurred before the fall. It is to provide each one of us with opportunities to have dignity and to reflect like mirrors on the fact that our God made the beauty of this world and everything in it and invested authority or agency in us to serve Him in the midst of it. And so why, why do we do well? Why do we make a new product? Because we want that new product to benefit people so their lives can have a greater sense of joy or purpose. Why do we do well when we, we serve as teachers? Because we believe every single one of those little children is made in the image of God. Not just that they need to learn to do math, although learning to do math is a part 
of learning to reflect the image of God in the way that we live. And so one of the great challenges for us is to break down this, this, this secular, sacred divide that exists where, oh, what we're doing today is spiritual and what we're going to do tomorrow is, is secular. Well, that's not a biblical view. What we do today is spiritual. What we do tomorrow is spiritual. Because we are people that have been saved by the grace of God and empowered to reflect Him in the world. And so that's the essence of what you do as an employee or an employer in your relationships with other people. You, you show reverence and uh, a heart-deep motivation. You do not flatter or people-please. And you serve one another with a positive disposition that's grounded in the fact that you see beyond what's right in front of you. Now, interestingly, there is an additional requirement for masters. And this is like what goes on in all of these passages because the authority, the person who's supposed to be the leader, often is given a little bit more to think about. And in this case, the extra requirement for masters comes in verse 9. Look what it says there in verse 9. Masters, do the same for them. And something else for you to think about. Stop your threatening. Stop you're threatening. Why would he say that? That's the Greek term, apile. It means a, a harsh or menacing disposition. And the reason he would say that is, is, is should be somewhat obvious to us is that most of the way that the world worked at that point was by masters intimidating their workers into performing by threatening them. If you don't do this, then I will do that. And the I will do that part wasn't like, I'll write you up on a pink slip. It's like, I will throw you out on the street. I will enslave your children. I will turn you into the authorities. And so the, the, the bond servants, the doulos in a lot of these cases, would feel under heavy pressure every time that they work. Well, Paul says, you're a Christian. You can't do that. Well, you can hold people accountable to their work. But you cannot, you cannot reference yourself to them as an intimidator. It goes contrary to the gospel. This is not the way the Christian household works. We have some of this when we think about our confession of faith, our Westminster Confession of Faith and Larger Catechism as a beautiful section on the Ten Commandments. And if you've never read through that devotionally sometime, it would be of value to you. But it does address this question in question uh, 100. In 29, when it says, what is, what is required of superiors toward their inferiors? And here's what the answer is. This is a little bit of an updated language translation. It is required of superiors, so masters, employers, according to that power they receive from God and that relation in which they stand to love, pray for, and bless their inferiors, to instruct counsel and admonish, encouraging them, commending them, and rewarding those who do well, and disciplining, exhorting, and chastising those who do poorly, protecting and providing for them all things necessary for soul and body, and by a serious, wise, and holy example to procure glory to God and honor to themselves so as to preserve that authority which God has given them. 
That's our calling. If we have find ourselves in any position in life in which we have to supervise other people. Do we, do we do that? Or do we just miss it? In other words, we might have an employer's handbook, and that's fine, but God gives us an additional handbook, and it contains the ideas that are cataloged here. I was at the soccer game last night, no big surprise. I still have a voice, which is good. Um, but you know, one of the great things at the end of that game, those players worked their tails off, they won, is that right after the game, they gathered in the center of the field, and all of those players were hugging their coach. You know, that coach probably works them pretty hard during the week. <laughs> he runs their tails off. They do push-ups, sit-ups, weight workouts. They push it to the absolute edge. He probably has to yell at them and, and, and push them. But after that game, they ran to him, and they hugged him. And that's kind of the idea that we ought to be looking for when we have that kind of relationship with the people who work for us, that they see us as someone that is, is doing what we're doing as a blessing to them. The last thing I want to mention this morning is the spiritual framework around this context. And it, it kind of derives from that verse 9 where we're called to do the same, masters do the same. So whether you're serving or you're leading you're called together. And I just want to leave you with three or four things to think about here to take home with you in terms of the way that we operate in vocation. These are, if you will, the ground rules for Christian interaction in the workplace. Here's the first one. Engage with the other party as if they were Christ. It may seem extreme, but look at verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. And so there's a sense there in which, which we should look at that other person and say, you know, I should treat them the way I would treat, treat Christ if he was there in front of me. How would I treat Jesus if he was my boss or if he was the person working under my authority? We're, we're not Jesus, they're not Jesus, but there's a, there's a sense there to that. The same thing goes on number two, Rep your, represent yourself to the other party as if you were Christ. This is kind of an interesting one. It says in verse 6, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God. You're not Jesus, but listen, carry yourself in such a way that when they see you, because many people will make up their mind about Jesus based on how Christians act, carry yourself in such a way that the way you conduct yourself shows them a little bit more of the reason why Jesus is worth it. The third thing, both you and the other party have a common master who is Christ. Verse 9, stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. So what's Paul saying? You're all slaves. Stop, stop and recognize every one of you, the wealthiest landowner and the poorest servant are all bondservants to Jesus. You know, it's like that moment when you're at, the, you're at the big box store and you're wandering on the aisles and somebody comes up to you and tugs on your sleeve and asks you if you can, they can, you can direct them to where to find laundry detergent. You know, as if you're the employee there and we get all huffy and puffy about it. Like, I don't work here. I'm a customer. Well, what Jesus is saying is, I'm not a... I'm not a servant. 
I'm a boss. Jesus wants us to take a step back from that and recognize, no, you're all servants. You're servants of Jesus. Frame the way you live in that manner. The last thing is that Christ, the common master, will give back to the earnest servant or master for the good they do. Knowing, this is verse 8, that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. The idea here is that those who suffer under an unjust master or boss or who experience a rebellious bondservant or employee are seen by the Lord. And he will make amends in his own timing, in his own ways, especially when it comes to glory. He will not be partial against masters or servants. And the beauty of this, in the end, is that both will be equally covered by the blood of his son. Master, servant, old, young, male, female, great or small. But the Lord will cover us equally with the blood of his son. And that we will sit at the banqueting table in glory with one another. And all that will matter is that we've been covered by Jesus. That was at the heart of what Paul was saying to Philemon. I just want to read for you in closing his appeal to Philemon. He said this, for this perhaps is why he, referring to Onesimus the slave, was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. We have an opportunity, whatever our role in the workplace is, to represent ourselves to people there in such a way that they see Jesus. Let's not miss that opportunity as we go forward into our lives. Let's pray together. Father, would you be with us now as we prepare to come to the Lord's table as your servants in which we remember, celebrate, and receive with gratitude the work of the great servant, Jesus Christ who himself subjected himself to the power of betrayal and hatred, took on himself our sins and our sorrows, that we might be relieved of the burden and set free to have relationship with you. Father, help us to come gratefully to this table today. And Father, use this table to propel us forward into our lives as your servants, for Jesus' sake. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.